and Apex Lab Podcast. Hey there, welcome to the Level Up Engineering Podcast, where we speak to the most experienced technology leaders from around the world. So stay with us to learn actionable management insights to take your engineering team to the next level. This show is powered by Apex Lab, a team of experts in end-to-end digital product development. ApexLab.io Welcome, everyone, and welcome to the first ever offline recording of the Level Up Engineering podcast. And with that said, I am Karolina Toth, and my guest today is Akos Kapui from Shaper 3D. He is the VP of Engineering, and before that, he was Engineering Director at Skyscanner, and before that, he was CTO and co-founder at Distinction, which was later acquired by Skyscanner. And he also holds a master's degree in computer science. Let us start by first uh, introducing you. What do we need to know about you? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me and inviting me. I'm super excited. Uh, Always good to be the guinea pig in new formats. So I'm Akos, as you introduced me already, but I usually say that I'm a software engineer by degree. I'm a hacker in my soul and uh, I'm a manager by role. So I ended up doing a lot of management nowadays. Today, I am leading the engineering organization at Shaper 3D. And before that, uh, I was co-founding a a mobile software development startup in Hungary. We've been building mobile apps for other companies. So it was more like um, an agency rather than a a startup, but we ended up doing a lot of great products uh, for our own uh, as well. After three years, no, four years, uh, we ended up being acquired by Skyscanner. Skyscanner was one of our partners and uh, we built more mobile apps for Skyscanner as well. And at that time, Skyscanner was a relatively big business. Uh, so it was 400 people already and a big market share, uh, but their primary product was on the, on the web. It was already clear at that time that uh, uh, travel is going to be mobile only or, or very much mobile focused and they didn't have any expertise so decided to acquire one of their uh, partners and it was us distinction. Unfortunately or fortunately the deal was so good that we could not turn it down. We wanted but uh, couldn't and uh, the opportunity itself was, was great. Uh, so they acquired us not just to have uh, 30 people, uh, but uh, to, to bring in talent and building and forming uh, a company strategy around mobile. So our goal and my responsibility, the responsibility of my co-founder was to turn Skyscanner into, into a mobile first company. So that's the reason we joined. I spent three, de- three years there. I don't say we accomplished everything in that period of time, but uh, it definitely was a journey. Uh, the whole company grown to more than 1,000 people. I was responsible around 100 people, like six in six cities or countries across the world. And uh, uh, I was responsible for the mobile uh, engineering for Skyscanner. Uh, then I left for a sabbatical and paternity leave for a, a short period of time, maybe a year or so. And then uh, in t- uh, two years ago, I joined Shaper Treaty. Um, at that time, it was already on, on a good track, going high up on, on the hockey stick. As far as I remember when I talked to the Ishvan, the, the, the co-founder, I think they had 12 people altogether. When I joined two, two months later, uh, it was already 20. So I was, I think, employee number 20. And now we have already, already 100. So two years ago, it was more or less 20. Now we are closing to reach the 100 line. So it's, uh, it was a quite a journey. In the same way, the number of engineers also grown from like seven to 40, 50, something like that. Nice. Uh, so that's so far. Thank you. Thank you for that. With that said, let's hear a little bit about the company. 
the Coding Sun CTO asked me to mention that that company started in this very room. So good thing we are recording here. What do we need to know about um, Shaper 3D? Yeah, so Shaper 3D is a, a 3D design tool. Um, so it's called a CAD tool. Most people might say it's a boring business or it's a boring industry for one reason, because most of the products that exist today and popular today are old businesses. So most of our competitors are 30 years old businesses, pretty big ones. So it's uh, like all of them are on, on the stock market and they have a lot of revenue and all these things. Like the whole industry is not changing on a very fast pace. I would say the inertia is high there uh, for, for many, many reasons. But uh, each one had the idea that... Uh, Something that was cool and great 30 years ago might not be that great today. So he, he, was, he had the passion of like, I want to change this industry and create something iconic that will form the industry for the next 30 years. Uh, so that's the plan. Uh, we had a good run so far, managed to release the, the application in 2016. And then uh, the primary product was based on uh, iPads and still uh, our primary product is running on iPads only. Uh, the market was relatively small at that time. Now it's, uh, it's growing and now we are moving forward to, to release application to all desktop platforms. Uh, so Windows and Mac OS as well and uh, create that iconic product that uh, we all, all wish to have. Since you've joined, what were the challenges of this growth? So I remember at that time it was like relatively small. The company is much smaller than I uh, got used in Skyscanner to like it was 1000 people at the time I left uh, and we had like eight engineers at the time I joined. So the, the role of um, like senior executive or a engine manager was completely different to what I used to. But given I, as I mentioned in my, in my soul, I'm a hacker, so I, it was the right exercise to get started with. Holistically speaking, I usually think of uh, engine management as a problem solver uh, function. So whatever breaks in a company, it, uh, it comes to me. I am responsible for making sure that things don't break very often. And if they break, they can, we can learn from those. So there's an English phrase I found of like uh, the bucket stops for, with me. And uh, I think of myself as whatever happens, I'm responsible for that. And I'm not saying I'm solving the problem in most cases, uh, but uh, if uh, release a buggy product to, to production, it was me not creating an environment where people can confidently do things uh, like on fast pace and release things. If someone decides to leave from the company uh, because something was not great, then it was my responsibility not creating an environment where people can uh, like stay for longer or at least talk about their problems and discuss whether there's an opportunity. I'm not saying if we should keep everyone for, for forever because there is like, uh, especially if you are such a gr high growth, uh, doubling your size every year, uh, there's uh, so many things that can change and might not be that attractive to other people who joined relatively early. But uh, because of that, it's, it's super exciting. So there are a lot of people who joined in early days, like the, the co-founder or the founder and um, the first engineers who joined. And uh, when they see that a lot of new people join who might be more experienced than they've been and uh, how, you, how you solve these conflicts in, in that setup, how you prepare for, for the additional conflicts that might come, how you build up new functions that haven't existed before. Like engineering was a primary function in, in Shaper 3D from early days. Ishvan, the co-founder, was, was coding a lot uh, all days, all night. Uh, that has changed uh, and uh, that, that was already in a different shape when I joined. Uh, but uh, design function, product function, marketing function, these are things that uh, evolve over time depending on maturity and all comes with different problems so going back to that your original question like what was uh, what was the problem there so I think of the very first thing I, I wanted to solve is making sure that we can hire people who are equally good or just or even better than the, the people who have been there uh, for a while and it's not easy especially if you are small your brand is not big and uh, you have to go like 
to the wide and like bring in these people yourself. I called this uh, strategy at that time Moneyball Recruiting. You might have heard, uh, I've seen the movie uh, with Brad Pitt, The Moneyball. It was a baseball team and uh, they use B players or C players to build a, a team. All the big companies are hunting workless engineering and the workless talent. There is a niche market, too many needs, too many uh, appetite to hire. So you can, can just do all the things that Google, Facebook, big companies do and in the market, you have to do something else. And I called it like Moneyball Recruitment. It was a coin that I heard read and, uh, and used, so it's not coming from me, uh, just for, for full transparency. So what I did, for example, I started to scrape the university website uh, for essays and thesis projects and fi- trying to find the people who might not have ended up in LinkedIn or somewhere else as a, as a profile, but they could be exciting, especially given Shepard 3D is operating in a complex domain. So like it's mathematically complex, it's uh, engineering wise complex. It's not just like building a product. It, like, there's a lot of details in depth in our applications. So it was important to hire people who are excited about building and solving those, those mathematical problems and not just uh, great interfaces, for example. And uh, those people tend to be not that visible in the startup market uh, as well. So I did a lot of really like writing the code, getting like couple of thousands of, of essays and going through one by one and finding those people who have not been seen in the market. It wasn't that successful, to be honest. At that time, I realized that uh, recruitment is a function that we need. Not shortly after I joined, uh, I started to put together uh, the requirements of like how to how to build up the, the recruitment organization. Again, it might not have, might not have to relate completely to an engineering uh, leadership and management, but uh, if you are the single most important function uh, for recruitment perspective, and it's your job to to make sure that you, there is a highly performant recruitment funnel, uh, you can uh, interview people with high confidence, you can hire people, the, the people who join can actually understand what you want to do and they can be onboarded at a relatively fast uh, pace. If they don't turn out to be good, then you can tell them that they are not good and uh, or the match is not great. So so you can you can separate ways of if, if uh, things are not going well, then you can help them to, to improve and these kind of things. There are a lot of different things uh, around growing and my first like most important uh, critical uh, job was to making sure that uh, we can hire people and uh, a lot of people we can interview a lot of people we know what good is we don't know what bad is we know what what uh, what, what type of profile can match to, uh, to our culture and what can't so this was the most impactful part of the the first couple of months as thank you thank you for sharing that i actually just thought back to episode three of Level Up Engineering, where I talked with um, Rich Archbold from Intercom. And he also mentioned that one of the most important parts of scaling is making sure that your hiring processes are up to par with your expectations. And so you can find the people who are in that niche where you're looking for. Besides the building of of a recruitment process or teaming up with recruiters, how do you know if someone is your type of engineer? What is your engineering culture like? Yeah, it's uh, like like a lot of good materials online, like how to interview people. And there are a lot of things around on the web, like how to do things well. My view on this is that they don't matter if they are not uh, related to your environment. I usually start from scratch, like what is the problem and what needs to be solved. In our case, we had good engineers with very good depths of uh, of knowledge already. Uh, But uh, if you scale the recruitment, you have like you interview 100 people a a month or a quarter, uh, you have to have more people who do these interviews because the most senior people who've been building software previously, now they're interviewing and most of the time spending interviewing. Now you can like think of like, like how to train these people. And uh, when you're training these people, uh, 
uh, it takes more resources than less resources before it ends up. But if you don't do that, uh, then what, what can happen is that uh, different people start to make different uh, conclusions. I personally think that uh, recruitment is a subjective exercise. People want to make it less subjective. Uh, they create a lot of frameworks around it. But at the end of the day, it's like me personally think that this individual can make great achievement accomplishment in the company. And because I am like this kind of individual, I think, and I'm successful, people who are similar to me can be also be successful. And uh, that's a limitation because if you only make a decision whether that individual can be successful or not, then uh, you will hire, end up hiring a lot of similar people that um, similar to your, your character. But uh, you, you have to have a lot of different roles in, in the company. And I've seen, for example, the CEO, uh, he made a lot of decisions and he was also looking for the entrepreneurial spirit uh, that, that makes company and they successful. But when you reach a level where you need another 20 people, you cannot and we shouldn't look for that in, in, uh, entrepreneurial spirit because that's a different type of role. You need people who are very consistent. You have the experience and, and stamina to go through different uh, uh, things who are happy to write documents around how to build things and push back if something is not going in the right direction. Entrepreneurs tend to be like very active and proactive in building things, shipping things, but uh, it doesn't matter if you ship the wrong thing or if you ship things and then they break. So um, my, my view on like, I usually r write down things and that was not very common in Shaper uh, beforehand. If you have eight people working together or 20 people, it's just easy to speak, easier to speak. Like you roll over to the desk and then you discuss. When, uh, when you're making decisions separately and not in the same room and you want that decision to be very similar and uh, use the similar techniques, then you have to write down things. And writing is easy, is, is important because uh, it also helps you to be very specific. In words, you can say like, okay, we do this. And it's easy, just like you will know uh, if he knows that uh, exercise and if it's, if you write it down, it's like you reread it. Like if if you're just like talking about nonsense and like generic things, then you reread it and like okay, this is not helping at all. I call it that time interview packs. So every single positions we had, we had interview packs. Interview pack consisted of uh, four different artifacts, materials. One is homework, a second of depth of experience, like what are the requirements of that role and what we look for. And two parts are culture related and all of the roles have had very specific requirements of what to look for. What bad look likes, what good look likes, what excellence look like. And we haven't looked for like check marks for all the areas, but for if you if we hire a junior individual, like inexperienced individual, we look for like motivation a lot. And it doesn't really matter whether he knows the stack we use, because if he is really capable or she's really capable, then he can pick up uh, those learnings uh, quite fast. But if she is not motivated enough, then it's not going to work. And uh, that, that's that's something very important. I, I think people, companies should be very specific of what type of profiles they look for, what other people can be successful and be explicit, share those contents uh, with the company, uh, see how people uh, agree or disagree with that. If you do this decision yourself, it's going to be like very homogeneous or homogeneous um, setup at the end. And as well. so it, it has to be inclusive. You have to include the people who made decisions in the past and make sure that they also align with the, with the journey. CEO at that time was very vocal on, on what is good and what is bad. Sometimes I agreed, sometimes I completely disagreed. Nice. Thank you. So let's steer our conversation to uh, the bigger picture of scaling. First of all, I would like to ask you, you mentioned that you were employee number 20. Yeah. And you also mentioned that as the new kid on the block, you were dissimilar in the fact that you were used to the fact that notes need, need to be taken. Would you say that it's around that size when a company needs to kind of shift its focus to hiring more 
dependable and and people who are capable of doing kind of tedious work is is that around the number where perhaps our listeners should be aware of perhaps hiring for for more consistency my view is there's no certain answer of like whether 20 people is the the right amount of time to start be more precise it depends a lot on your growth uh, ambition like that and if you're not growing at all like it doesn't really matter whether it's 20 or 21 or 40 but when you are even small, but you're doubling each year, that's, that comes with a completely different uh, setup. Usually think of management, like need for management for cases when, if you ask an individual uh, whether she or he receives enough feedback about uh, her job, the, um, if the answer is no for multiple people, I think that you, you, are, you are in a problem where there's not enough like management and uh, structure in your organization. People individualized, uh, like smart, rational, and capable individuals want to do the great things. Uh, however, sometimes they don't know what great is. And it is very important to help them understand whether they, what they delivered, what they did, what they said is great or not great, or it matching the expectation or not. This is the best uh, like tool set to help individuals to grow. Usually I, I, I do a lot of interviews. I think I've did maybe a couple of hundreds in Shaper and again, close to 500. So wait, do you, do you still do a lot of interviews as VP of engineering? I do. I I meet all the people still. I had 10 interviews this, this, this week. Uh, it's a lot of like, I think in a growing organization, 30% of your uh, time should be allocated management time on, on helping people to understand how can they, how can they join the the company? Uh, what they like interview them, whether they are a good fit or not. And if uh, they're not good fit, then uh, allocate time to give the feedback back to them. So I'm, I'm always, so whenever, we hire 1% of people applying. Um, so it's a lo- lo- lot of lot of resources that goes into interviewing. But uh, we also try to be consistent in giving feedback. So people who weren't a good fit for our current journey or at this time, we always try to give them feedback. And uh, my viewers on that are always available. So if someone, like the recruiter has to write and, and feedback the, the thoughts, but uh, she, she also uh, like mentions that if you need more like details on specific uh, around the problem set, then Akash is available to talk. And then to the, this, this week, I think, talked to three people just about the, the, the perception in the interview. Wow. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are really grateful if they hear that this is something that companies actually do. Yeah, uh, I tend to think we're doing great, but there's always like space for improvements and always like we make mistakes as well. So I'm sure, sure we done, we've done a lot. Uh, but uh, my philosophy is that if they invest the time to learn about your company, it's just the minimum that you give that amount of feedback that you received and uh, g- be specific on the reasoning. If it's a technical mismatch, like he, she, he, she or some, he doesn't know or doesn't have that experience, it's easy. If it's a cultural mismatch, that's a little lot harder to discuss. And it's very hard to, to, to talk about these in person. Like telling someone that who is, doesn't have the intrinsic, intrinsic motivation for personal growth. And this explaining why it's important and why we think he or she doesn't have that, it's not an easy exercise, but uh, it's useful, it's hurtful because that helps um, in recruitment overall, because those people who had a great experience in your funnel will talk to other people, they ca- might come back a year later and would want to try again. Maybe they improved. We hired people, a lot of people who were no in the first round and then they, they came back later and they developed their skills. And... With an improved yeah. uh, set of skills. That's amazing. Thank you not, so much. Not sure what was the original question, which i not sure I answered. But, uh... Yeah, you did. You basically said it depends on when you should be looking for those managerial types of colleagues. How I started is that if you see 
that your people are not comfortable in their role and they're not delivering. And uh, there's a consistent answer, no answer for the question whether you, you have received uh, enough uh, feedback for the past six months. That signals there are problems unsaid, there are problems unresolved, and there is lack of ownership for these kind of problems. As I said, uh, managers have to be responsible for, for any kind of things. And they won't solve the problem on their own, but uh, whenever there's something that is like falling behind two chair or and nobody is really willing to take care of that, then it's the responsibility of the, the manager. And then the higher you are on the management track, the, the more you get around those, those problems. Right. Thank you so much. I just have to share this. I am preparing a presentation about psychological safety for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the things that you are telling me really resonate with the atmosphere of what psychological safety looks like. One out of 50 people in the interview are confident that they receive feedback about the work they do. This is the ratio. Most people who work in, in, in companies in this country, and uh, I've been interviewing multinationally as well, they usually don't receive feedback. So I always ask whether you receive feedback, what is the type of feedback you receive, how do you react to those problems, how did you give feedback to your colleagues and your manager and your direct reports if it's a manager role. And usually uh, people can, can come up with any specific examples because it's not, not a requirement, it's not a important aspect of building an organization in their um, environment in their company so let's change that awesome i think we need to touch on scaling in the context of startups i think what we usually read about is that when a startup is about the size of a tribe or a smaller village then the product market fit has already been established and the data has been gathered so it's time to scale if it's the right time for that company but i think you have a different metaphor no i think it's something similar so when i when, think of scaling so uh, you see a lot of product companies being successful in the early days like they deliver like amazing products in the early days consumers start to pick that up and then uh, there's a huge growth and then what you see is like those companies start to slow down my personal example was very refreshing. So I, was, I worked for Skyscanner at that time. I was in Edinburgh where the headquarters was. And after hours, I went to a pub uh, having a lunch, drink, whatever. And I had my badge on my uh, shirt. And the guy in the pub asked me, like, hey, are you working for Skyscanner? I said, yeah, I, I, I do. Oh, that's great. Can I have a question? Sure, sure, go ahead. What are these 400 people doing at that big office? Your website hasn't changed for four years. And uh, well, I... Uh, I wanted to have the argument, but uh, actually it was the case. Like 400 people uh, were working at that time, maybe about 600 at that time. But uh, the speed of iteration is, is always slowing down when you reach a, a scale. Because a lot of different problems, how you make decisions can start to slow down. There's a lot of different things that you have to take care of. It previously was not a problem legally and all, all the other pieces. And my view, and uh, this is the view I... I mentioned when I had the talk with Ishvan about joining is my view is that this has to change. So if you accept that uh, like you will be slowing down as, as you go forward, then you will slow down. If you like set the bar that you don't want to slow down and you are aspired and, and uh, motivated to, to prove that it's, it, it can, like you can have a setup where, where speed can be maintained on the same level, maybe even improve if you scale, then you might reach, reach that level. But if you're not shooting for that, then, then definitely won't, won't reach that. And uh, the analogy I I'm, I'm look for and usually uh, stand in an argument is, so assuming you are on your own, you are, you have, you're a farm, you have a small family and you are building a, a settlement there and uh, you are 
growing vegetables and you have some animals as well because that's how you survive uh, the winter and uh, every day and there's no one else there and your productivity is okay you can feed the family but uh, but in terms of like gdp or like raw productivity it's it's it's, it's low and assuming that you have a new neighbor uh, because someone comes across and ignore that there are frights and these kind of things in, in these situations so everybody is friendly everybody is, is uh, supportive so what they do is uh, they share the work uh, so if someone is ill, then they, they take it over so the, the vegetables can grow. Uh, one of the family is more specialized in growing vegetables. The other is more specialized in, in uh, feeding animals and growing animals. And uh, the productivity increases. And if you extrapolate that to a certain level, well, you think of cities. Cities has the biggest amount of uh, like productivity, the highest amount of productivity overall. And uh, if you compare to countryside, and I'm not talking about quality and like not, not the specific details, but in terms of productivity, the, the, the cities has a massive amount of uh, productivity levels and de- their scale is like amazing. The question is, how come cities end up being super productive while startups end up being less productive as they grow? And my answer is that in big cities, if you are a butcher slicing and selling right. food, no one tells you how to slice. And you can make your own decision. You have, you have a very strong connection to that shop because it, maybe you are the owner. Maybe you are, you know the, the owner. Uh, you've been the first hire, but it's, you have a strong responsibility to deliver a good work. Because no, if, if you're not doing that, then something is going to like customers will complain. And uh, there's no one like the prime minister is not telling you how to slice that ham uh, because he doesn't know. And uh, the, the problem that can happen easily is if you don't recognize that those teams who are in the front line should make the, their own decisions. And this can happen easily if you start to scale the, the CEO, the individuals, the people who've been there, the single most important individuals, the highly opinionated people are still making those decisions. And what happens that their level of understanding of the problem decreases because they're much further away from the problem. They just like receive a subset of the question like, should I slice this ham this way? And I, oh yeah, you should, because we used to slice this this way. And uh, the, the, the fact is that the environment has changed. The problem is different, but you are not there. And um, I don't have problem be, with micromanagement. I think micromanagement is not a bad thing. The problem is that those decisions are awful. So if you, if you are further away from, from the front line, then, and you are making, still making a decision that affects the day-to-day life of uh, someone else who has a much better view on making this decision, then you shouldn't make those decisions. So like making a lot of decisions, confident decisions, it's okay. Um, maybe in, in certain scenarios, the CEO has to make a lot of decisions. But if those uh, decisions end up being terrible, that's the problem. And uh, usually what the case is that micromanagement ends up making a lot of like uh, bad, decisions. bad decisions. That's the, the conclusion. And if you go ahead from 20 people to 40, you need to make decisions differently. And the people who are in front line have to make these decisions. And you go to 100, again, you have to have a different kind of behaviors, like how to make people, how have to help people making these decisions, uh, how to how to help them make being comfortable uh, taking responsibility and, and how to align what is a good decision, what is a bad decision, how to learn from the mistakes, because we all make mistakes. And uh, this is where I think uh, startups, scale ups and the big enterprise uh, start to differ a lot from cities where uh, prime minister is not making a decision on, on very certain details. like. They also make, make, make mistakes, like whether it's a good environment they build or not or bad, but uh, the very details and very, very big decisions are always done by the frontline workers. So you are making a case for enabling your colleagues to be able to make good decisions with being 
responsible for their own decisions? Yeah, yeah. Making decision is a word like it's, it's so easy to like, yeah, make a lot of decisions. But in practice, people are inexperienced to make decisions, make decisions like fast and stick to these decisions, decisions and learn from those decisions and acknowledge that they made the decision and not pointing out like, oh, yeah, this decision has been made by someone else. And uh, this is this is this was uh, like second. So when I joined Shaper, it was around the seeding time, like 20 people and we we're moving uh, like closing to a Series E um, investment at, at that time. Uh, and, and the behaviors changed, the growth changed just after we closed the, the Series A round. And my role has changed a lot. I started to hire uh, people into management as well. So it was not just me uh, talking people, but also a lot of different people joined for the purpose of fostering this environment. And uh, I no longer was a single individual making the decisions around whether we should do this or whether that's bad or not. But a lot of people also helping me and uh, working together to, to creating this environment. And uh, that's, again, a, a shift in, in, in tendency because it's much more difficult to message things through other individuals. It's much more uh, difficult for me to understand how the organization is, is working, whether the frontline workers are actually happy about the, the development we, we made in the organization, whether they know actually there is work uh, uh, improving. Um, yeah, in early days, they don't have, like, when I joined Shape, in Shaper, no one has really an idea what management is about. Even though a lot of people had an experience working in different companies, they had either a very bad articulation of what management is, or they didn't have an idea what they should expect from management. And if you leave, leave it that way, then no one will have a, ever an expectation from you. But if you are very specific that all the problems should uh, be solved, and there is, if someone is not feeling happy, motivated, and uh, um, enabled in the organization, then it's your problem, then people will come to you that, that I've seen someone not being uh, happy in their job. And uh, can you help uh, with that? And uh, you can set a practice that you listen to these people and you actually try to make, make that disappear. And if you set a practice where people are raising problems and no one is doing anything about it, then there will be a practice of not raising this problem because who cares? But if there is a practice that you establish in the early days and you see that behavior that someone has a problem they can talk to someone who has actually tool sets to recognize it's not not always true that someone is like always right or wrong maybe the individual has a different perspective and he has to be educated has to walk it through of why that is a wrong conclusion of the current environment why we should do instead of that or, or uh, instead of that doing something else but it's also work you have to have to see that's the reason i think uh, thinking of management early on is, is important i enjoy being in a scrappy organization. So I'm, I'm a hacker in my soul. I, I, I tend to be my code and my, the things I write, I uh, still code a lot, not always in Shaper. Uh, I stopped doing that for a while, but uh, after work, I still enjoy um, doing coding myself, but my work is scrappy and that's, that's okay. But if you keep your organization very scrappy and you scale problems with your eyes, if there's no one solving those problems, then uh, problems will cause fire. If there's fire, people will leave and uh, you will those departures will cause another fire and which will, you will be unable to put off. And it will affect your ability to produce how quality products. Overall. Right. Yeah. Right. And overall, everything bad. With that said, I have a question here about how you scale your engineering management structure together with the scaling of the entire organization. But let me just tell you what I heard from you and you can yeah. tell me if it's correct or not. Because it seems like in the beginning, you have to make decisions in the leadership quickly and firmly to steer the organization in the ideal direction, whatever that might be. And then gradually, 
you need to go into more of a coaching phase where you help the people make the decisions that are best for the company as a whole and kind of show them a mirror and point out to them what they have done right or mm. what they have done wrong. Is that right? Yeah, there's a lot of truth in uh, what you, how we echo back what, to what I said. Um, in terms of behaviors, I think there's a constant work around understanding what is good and what is bad. So I'll give you a specific examples. So you have a culture that accepts politics to be discussed and being used across the organization. It might be good, might, might not be good. But if you don't have a view on this and you just like let it happen, then it will lead to a setup where people disagree with each other that like, should should like the politics be involved or not involved? And uh, I have a lot of views on politics. I'm not, not an um, expert, but I, I have discussions, but usually we don't do that in, in Shaper, for example. Also, we are super keen on, on being transparent. And uh, making sure that the whole organization is is excited, motivated, committed to to fight for this attribute is not easy because it doesn't happen just out of nowhere. If, if you write down that this company is going to be transparent, uh, the company is not going to be transparent. If uh, the CEO starts to not tell the numbers and uh, whether there was a failure in, in, in terms of delivery, then uh, people won't know and the people will start to think that this is, this is completely normal. So your role is also to, to understand whether the behaviors we see are great or bad. And it's not a decision that you make, okay, that was bad or that was good, but you have to work with people whether, whether this is useful or not and help them understand that they have a role in, in catering the organization. It's not just like um, if someone is slacking about politics, then uh, you publicly blame them. It's a question mark that you discuss together with all the people and help them understand and foster what you want to achieve. And uh, like if you continue this way, this is going to happen. If you are not prepared for all hands meetings and you go there and you don't ask questions, you don't expect the individual who is standing there presenting to uh, answer tough questions, those presenters won't prepare. It's your role as an individual to ask the tough questions. And uh, if nobody ca cares much whether those questions are answered, then people won't answer the question. They won't prepare uh, and the amount of information they will share uh, with the audience are going to degrade over time. Not answering specifically the question uh, you had, but yes, the, the decisions like start to deviate in, in how dues are made. I'm still making a lot of decisions as, as far as I think, but dues uh, are not like a specific decision like that affects something tomorrow. It's more about how we think about problems, how we plan ahead uh, a quarter, wh whether we plan ahead a year or, and what are things we, that is important. If we are uh, seeing problems, should we prioritize that problem uh, above anything else or not? This, here I usually have a very strong view and I expect people to, have, to disagree with me because a lot of cases I have wrong views. But if you set up an environment where people can't disagree or don't want to disagree or not willing to disagree, then you will end up being alone and you make the decisions and they will be either bad or wrong and, and lately it's, it's going to be bad. Thank you. You said that you are around 100 right yeah, now? So I, uh, what I know is uh, we reached the 100 limit in Jira and not, maybe we haven't removed uh, some old employees, I don't know, but we are definitely between 90 and 100 somewhere. But given we are hiring uh, a couple of people each month, it changes day by day. And uh, if you ask like whether the number, the amount of people we hired or the, the amount of people who already started, that's uh, going to be a different, like maybe like five or six people already hired, but they haven't yet started. So it's always a difference in, in those numbers. Yeah, we are around 100. So how do you plan on growing? What's your projected growth for the next 
yeah. half a year, year, whatever time frame you. Yeah. I put together just like I, I have this big Excel sheet of my like future growth. I usually predict or estimate the growth for a year upfront, like how things are going to look like. And uh, now we see the end year with 177 people uh, all together in the company. So from growing from 90 or 100 to 177, uh, it's, great. it's more like a like 80% increase. But overall, from thinking from January, uh, it's basically again doubling uh, the, the headcount. But it's going to be possible. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so there are a lot of inputs to this. So whether we can actually hire these people and find these people, right. uh, we are still confident we are not changing the bar. So it's it's uh, there's also a notion of like if you want to grow hire a lot of people, you have to decrease the the quality because the first ten is great and then the second ten is okay and then you start to hire I don't know uh, less qualified people and uh, that's a wrong uh, way of approaching the problem. You have to have a very explicit bar of how you want to hire. You can go lower in terms of experience and you have these ingredients to grow but if you start to hire uh, b plus people those b plus people we hire c people and then uh, that will that will because you have to have a very consistent bar of what is good and what is bad and, and stick to that so in terms of growth what is even more scaring is that uh, the biggest part of this growth is going to go into into engineering. So we have uh, around 40 something people in engineering today, and that's going to be more than 90 end of the year. So it's more than doubling from from March uh, numbers. And again, it might happen that we won't be able to hire. It might happen that we started to see some problems arising. That uh, so, if I ask all, all my all my people in the engineering organization like whether they receive enough feedback about their work, and uh, if people start to say no, then it's signal that something is wrong. So we have to slow down. If the amount of issues we start to make, uh, the quality of the product start to decrease, it's also a question mark whether we are prepared for that level of growth. And we have to be super analytical of what we expect from this growth and what are the benchmarks which uh, we you need to keep in terms of understanding your health of the organization. And I'm super afraid how, how this is going to play out. But at the same time, uh, I'm confident that uh, we know at the time whether this is the right time to push further or just to slow down. Sometimes we pull the brake because there were problems we had to solve before we could um, go to the market again. Now we are on full speed on hiring again, but uh, we might reach an inflection point that we haven't foreseen before. It might happen that we are great in hiring uh, engineers, but we fall behind hiring designers or product managers. And you hire a bunch of engineers and no one is telling them what to do and how to do and what is great and what is not, then you will end up having a lot of people who ship things that are not going to be used. And uh, no, one is, no, one, no one is happy about building just for the sake of building. Uh, they, they, they keen to see the uh, the output and value of their work and uh, before because of that you need people to help them uh, right. a, lot, a lot i was afraid reaching the the 100 barrier now i'm uh, more and more confident and uh, the confidence is coming from actual like seeing that uh, the stage we reached today where we have 40 something engineers working together with high quality i did an exercise just this week and last week i talked to all the people i haven't had a very detailed relationship so like probably i work with 20 something people day by day uh, in, in one way to another. We see each other meeting or uh, a joint stand up or in one way. But there are a couple of people who I, I don't have a very, very uh, tight and close relationship because they joined uh, recently. I've been part participating in their interview, but I haven't talked to them since. So I, I went to, to these people and I, I asked like like similar question. How do you enjoying? Did I did I paint a 
too shiny picture in the interview funnel and that turned out to be not true or is there anything that i was selling or we were selling as a company that is not clear uh not 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 great do yourself enough feedback about your work i asked the same question for everyone and uh, i was super happy to receive a very confident answer a positive answer in most cases there are problems i found to exist that i haven't realized existing and i will work on those but overall the motivation the health the level of feedback that people receive and uh, the whole like atmosphere that that was painted through these discussions uh, were great and i was super happy to hear that that increases the confidence that, that we can we can go further but when you have 40 people in the company and half of them joined six in the last six months and you want to hire another 40 and someone needs to mentor those 40 people like you can choose the 20 who've been here for more than six months or you can choose the one that have been here for three months and uh, there is a there is a balance there and if you've spent like if you hire a lot of people that this this ambitious plan is the top that one company can achieve uh, in a healthy uh, way otherwise you will spend up either too much time in interviewing and you're not building software so the most experienced software engineers and managers or people uh, are going to like spend 90% of the time in interviewing or you don't spend a lot of time interviewing so just hire everyone and then uh, you deal with the consequences afterwards that's a problem so again mentoring is also a big question mark like how people uh, get experienced and be, get get confidence on how to do uh, to, to do great things and in this environment where everybody is remote and uh, in our company we can't come to the office uh, so the whole office is closed everybody is remote uh, it's a lot more a lot more difficult challenging uh, challenge yeah. challenge uh, than, than we thought before with that said do you differentiate hiring engineering managers and developers and what do you do to scale the engineering management roles together with the number of engineers now this is the one of the most difficult questions i had to think about and uh, so the, the problem here is that, uh, especially in, in this region, there isn't a very established good engine management culture. So people be doing engine management are usually the, the people who are less successful in, in being software engineer or weren't happy in that environment. And there is no one helping them understanding what good or how to behave as an engine manager, what is good and what is bad. And therefore, most of the people we want to hire don't have that level of experience in man engine management. The second difficult thing is that uh, you are hiring engine managers to help people, software engineers to become better. But if you are not great in, in software development on their own, then how do you establish your trust? How do you help the software engineers to trust their manager to go to them with questions if uh, there is no such a confidence in, 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 in that relationship. So um, it would be easy to say that we look for people who are less qualified in software engineering or they've been doing software engineering for a while, but they've switched to something else. And now uh, we look for only management requirements. And uh, that would be an easy choice, but we decided not to go that way. And uh, that affects our ability to hire engine managers, definitely. So one of the most, most difficult role to close. So for now, engine management is basically a similar level of requirements in, uh, in terms of technical depth uh, as a software engineer. Uh, we hire people with senior level, senior bar uh, for engine management, senior bar in technical exp expertise into management. And uh, we have a homework. So every single software engineer interview starts with a homework exercise and including the engine manager, they also complete the, the homework exercise. We look for different nuances in terms of like 
how they design software rather than how they optimize the code itself. But the exercise itself is, is very similar. The level of thinking, the depth of experience are very similar. And uh, we spend a lot more time on culture. Like my interviews are usually, usually focus, focusing on leadership behaviors and management. Uh, and spending an hour them, uh, understanding them, how they solve different problems with people uh, in their organization. But in terms of technical requirements, we're still on the size and maturity where we think uh, it's important. In, in comparison to Skyscanner, which was a much larger scale, that was still an important aspect. So engine management were great engineers as well. But we started to deviate from already like it's more important to be uh, better in management. And even if you haven't done a lot of hands-on work in the past like, couple of years, but you have the basic understanding and holistic view of software engineering, then that might be a, a good individual for, for engine management. But in Shaper at the scale with 100 people, we are still super consistent on having a very high bar for technical expertise. And that limits of people because we look for people who are great software engineers and great managers together. And in environment, in um, in city in Budapest, where uh, there are very few companies taking engineering management seriously and therefore very few companies educating their people uh, doing engine management better. Uh, so what I see is uh, it's going to be a tough journey and I'm still still confident what we should uh, approach the problem in this way and uh, it would have been much easier to not to do that. Uh, like there's a great pressure in terms of hiring and uh, engine management is an important part there. Uh, but uh, if we are not unable to hire or alternative grow people from inside, then we will slow down in terms of hiring because uh, I'm not confident to just hire people without making sure that those people can get feedback uh, about their work and qualitative and, uh, and interesting feedback. It's really exciting to hear you talk about setting the bar high. In everything that you have mentioned, it seems to me that um, you want to make a great product and you want to keep on building a great product and making it ever better so that the users can come back to you with great feedback about how the product has been becoming better. And now you're telling us about how engineering managers have to have this very high level of, of uh, technological knowledge. And you also mentioned your Excel sheet about uh, the projected growth of, of the number of people in the company. Just give our listeners uh, a few words about the preparations. Right now, how do you prepare for your projected growth? And if you can share some of those plans with us, that would be great. Yeah, I think we did a lot of great things in the past six months. Uh, six months ago, we didn't have a plan. We just went forward with numbers and what was great and what wasn't. And the, the reason why it's hard, because as an engine manager or like VP of engineering, I was like, tell me how many people you are going to hire. And then question mark is like, what are we going to build for these people? Like, what is going to be the, the next six months or 12, 12 months plan? And uh, then the VP of product comes to me and I, go, I can tell you what I want to build if you tell me how long they will take. And uh, this is always this argument of not knowing something, but predicting. But if the prediction is based on not knowing much, then it's going to be tweaked anyway. And uh, you have to decompose this complex problem. And the only way to do that is to always move one piece further. It's like, I think we can hire this amount of people and this is what we can build. And then the product leadership comes like, okay, but this is not enough. Okay, then, then why do you think it's not enough? Because this is something that we should do somewhere. Is it that more important than anything else with it? This list here? Yeah, that's more important. Okay, can we push out something? Uh, no, and through these discussions, you get a lot of different details. And 
I, I just talked to one of my colleagues and uh, he shared a great example. So estimation prediction planning is similar to zooming into a map. So if you are asked, for example, how uh, long is the shore through whole uh, Spain, then uh, if you start to measure from the zoomed out view, it, it, it's going to be okay, like 600 kilometers. I don't know exactly. I'm not good in geography. But if you start to zoom in, that you realize these are not straight lines. Right. These are just like lines going all across the shore. And uh, it, it, uh, what you assume to be 600 kilometers, it turns out to be uh, 1,000 or 2,000 or 6,000 6, because of the complexity. And this is this is exactly how projections and estimation uh, work. However, if you don't go af uh, ahead and, and try to estimate things, then you won't know whether these estimations were wrong or whether this is a like if I should, whether I should go f even further to understand the details. Usually I think of product as like, well, how many coins you have and how you want to spend these coins. We will figure out what we can build with these coins. But if you have just 10 coins and to build something, uh, then, uh, then it sets the expectation. Uh, you won't spend like, usually you don't spend 100 if you had just 10 coins. But uh, if you start building and you realize there's a lot more to do because you have a lot more coins and uh, the value is going to be a, a, a lot better sort of ROI-wise, it's, it's, it's working out, then you can allocate more coins. But you start to allocate coins to do those deliveries. So we started to work together with HR product uh, and engineering, and we started to put together this puzzle. And uh, we put together what we want to build, and we allocated number of users, what number of employees, how much we think needed to deliver this. And then we ended up with 260 uh, people. And then went back, okay, how am I going to hire this amount of people? How are, how are we get this, like we have to reduce. And then we also went back like, okay, we'll, we are only uh, okay or confident to hire this amount of people. We should remove a lot of different things from the plan. And then it started to shape the whole whole uh, discussion of like what's, what's good and what's bad, what shouldn't be considered important, what should be considered important. So nowadays I have an Excel sheet. The Excel sheet has this headcount like how many people we try to hire next quarter, how many positions we try to hire this quarter. And every time if I go like further, I always uh, zoom in for the next couple of weeks or months. Uh, so for this quarter, I have a very specific view of the open positions. For next quarter, I have a very specific view on what are the rows we want to close. For the rows after that quarter, so the Q3 and 4 this year, I have a zoomed out view of, I think we will hire, we're going to hire 20 people into engineering. It might happen that we won't be able to hire 20 in the previous quarter, so we have to rework the plan. But I'm, I'm thinking of similar to chess master. I'm not sure whether you play chess. Do you play chess? I have played chess. So yeah, so it, you know, when, when you, someone writes an algorithm in chess, how it works is it usually plays out the whole set of combination and chooses always the one that leads to the, the, the best outcome of the, uh, at the end. How chess masters think, and I am not a chess master, I just heard people talking about chess, they always think of like the next step is what is the step they need to make to get more information about making a better decision. And my philosophy is very similar. So I'm thinking of the next steps of what I should do to know more about what I need to do afterwards. And uh, usually this helps me to, to set the specifics. And then every week I go into this sheet and I just, if you hired someone, who was meant to be a C++ engineer. We looked for someone else, but we hired a C++ engineers. So I had to exchange people because now we had a C++ role 
that we closed and we have now another role that we need to open. And then it, it, it changes some of the nuances in the, in the plan. And uh, whenever we created a team that was in the plan and uh, that team is existing, then I have a lot better information whether what is going to be the next team I'm going to create because that is already ticked. And then I can work out the details of those, those requirements, whether there's already some people in the company who can be moved around because they are not working on that project that was super important that time, or we train already an individual who can take over jobs so that senior individual can go to the next team. So I'm always going into a lot more granularity for the next couple of things I do. And uh, if you are in the early days, usually there, your, your perspective looking ahead is just like a couple of weeks or months. And as you scale, you, you have to look further. You have to know what you need to do today in order to reach a number that you have at the end of the day. Uh, because uh, if you need to hire 60 people this year, you should have hired two recruiters uh, two months ago. And if you wanted to build that thing six months from now, you should already start working on the product ideas today. And if you don't do it, like you won't, that won't happen. And you have to be crystal clear, like you have the plan, you have like, this is what you have to achieve in one year. And you, you start to, to work backwards. Like, what do you, I need to do today to reach that goal? And if you, there's nothing you, can, you should do at this time to reach that goal because it's further away and it's not affecting, then it's either you don't have the visibility or second, it's something that we'll do with later on and you don't need to focus on that. So I have a, a big table with numbers. I have a big table of how the current organization looks like. So all the names in the different teams, all the positions I try to fill for those specific teams. So they are all the, all the positions are assigned to specific teams. And I also have a, a copy of this date for three months from now and six months from now. And for, for the, the names, I don't have yet the name because we haven't yet hired them. They just, there's a... A, a blank, a, a blank, blank something. But I see the number of people and the complexity. And if I see visually, and this team, I have like allocated two senior people, like two two inexperienced people, and four new hires. How is that going to fly? Because like inexperienced people and the the ratio of inexperience and the level of people who who who's, who's still about to hire, it's not going to work. And then I play around. And sometimes you break the level of seniority on that team, and then you pull the brake and remove the position uh, from from your post. Uh, job site. Um, so that's, right. that, that, that can happen. So, and the most important part is that is you don't do this alone. Like you share this with the team. Uh, you share with the leadership team, you share with the whole company. You expect people to ask questions. You expect people to challenge you. When, you, when they challenge you, you learn and you incorporate that. If people are, have, don't have the confidence that this is going to fly, you have to understand what's, what, what, where is that coming from? Because they already pissed off with uh, you know, a lot of code reviews, a lot of interviews. And, uh, and that, that you should something do against it because if you, are, you already have problems and you add more people to that problem, that problem will be uh, bigger. For example, uh, one of the problems we had is interviewing. So there were certain people who did a lot of interviews. And I looked into the, the data point, there are two things. One, it took a lot of time for an individual to go through the whole uh, interviewing funnel, like more than 40, 50 days, which is uh, way beyond the, the, the benchmark. So people disappeared from the, the funnel because you are too slow. And the second, uh, the people were disappointed because they wanted to build software and not uh, talk to people all the time. So I set a very specific uh, goal and no one in the company should have more than two interview related exercise uh, in one week. 
It can be a homework review. It can be an interview. It usually takes like two hours. So two, two, two sessions and uh, two people, then it's like four hours. It's still manageable. There will be, there are some people like myself and recruitment and there are senior people who do more than that. CEO does a lot of, uh, of uh, interviews, culture interviews uh, mainly, uh, but uh, average software engineers uh, do usually are limited to have only two and if there is a signal that uh, you cannot have the interview because there's not enough capacity it signals that you have to pull in more people in training and if you realize this at the time there's a problem you can solve it immediately because you have you have to train these people and it takes another two months to train them at least. And uh, if you don't have the senior people because the, the balance has decreased, then, then, uh, then it's a problem. And it was a problem in our case. So I had to go to people and say, hey, man, I think we are in a difficult situation. So one, we should slow down a bit so we can train these people. Second, we should help, ask help from the, the people doing the interview to do a little more for another one month or so and explain them what the problem is. And if they know the problem, they know the purpose then they can align and they can help. They can do like, okay, I, I can do a lot more. I understand now. But if this, they are not unclear about why you do this, you, they just get the sense of urgency, then they won't, won't behave that way. If they get the sense of purpose, like what is the, the reasoning and you, they have all the context, then they can conclude to the same decision that they invest more in, in interviewing because that's the most important thing they can do at this time. Right. And it's going to decrease if they help other other members to get, get experience and then they they do a lot of work on, on helping people helping other colleagues to get get practice all right thank you thank you for elaborating on that one we are kind of out of time here oh, but uh, i mentioned to you that i'm talking a lot <laughs> that's fine we are here to learn from you first of all i have an observation and please correct me if i'm wrong but it sounds like as the vp of engineering you tend to take on a lot of work where you project, look into the future, set the vision, create a strategy. You also go on to some of the granular work of the numbers of interviewing people individually. And meanwhile, to me, it kind of sounds like you are always iterating and checking back and making sure that you can see the consequences of your actions. Yeah, that's true. Sounds like it's a really full plate of, of work. Yeah, uh, so a few things. I have amazing people. We have amazing people in the whole company, uh, in management as well, who take on a lot. Like whatever I say, like we do, I do. There's a lot that I get help with uh, because they, they do the heavy lifting. For example, um, two, three months ago, I was directly managing 20 people. It was awful. Like quality was awful because I could not give the right amount of feedback to these people or some people. So people I work with directly day to day, I had a good observation and, and understanding what is better. And, what, and whenever I've seen something they had to know about, I, I was able to tell. But there were certain people I hadn't had that, that level of relationship because they were coding all day and I was doing something else. And the level of feedback I could give them was, was low. So I, I worked really hard to hire these people who can help them to give the feedback and replace the work because the work I, I did wasn't, wasn't that good. Uh, so, so one thing is, is it's just not, not a one-man job. The second, yes, I think one of the traits or traits of engine manager, managers in particular should have is a lot of throughput in terms of processing information, reading a different, like, uh, I'm reading basically all the Slack messages, like a couple of thousands a day. I'm reading a lot of content that are produced, design documents, product plans, engine reports, recruitment reports. I process, for example, the numbers 
for recruitment, how we do different things and, and then and ask questions around those. And you have to be super fast in processing information. That's, the, that's one of the main traits. And the second is that you do an interview, then you go to record a podcast and then you go back and you process again uh, recruitment numbers and then uh, you read the design document and you write a report for investors and then uh, you have an argument with a CEO, a CPO about how you how we saw the next two months plan and then it has turned out that the one of the product release was buggy and uh, you have to have like uh, understanding how to resolve that and uh, I'm, I'm not making any decisions in these kind of cases I'm observing and helping uh, whenever someone doesn't have the confidence I'm just like helping and uh, advising on, on uh, where there they could look or could, could get get help from so context switches and um, the amount of like different kind of inputs can can that can affect your focus during the day is just like huge uh, you have to get get used to that and I, I remember two weeks ago I sent a message to executive team that this is the level where I'm unable to process every single information that happens there's a lot more I should prioritize but it was exciting to read previously and I think it helped me to frame uh, the understanding of the the companies like how they make decisions but now I'm I have to skip some of those because it's just I'm unable to read to that amount of lines and documents every day right thank you you also have to create your own stop signs for yourself yeah. it seems all right thank you so much we have covered huge ground i think we talked about hiring and we talked about values and we talked about communications and feedback is there anything else that you would like to add yeah the ceo mentioned that i have to mention that this is was the room uh, <laughs> where shaper 3d has started off uh, i don't know the exact nuances the the, the setup but uh, the company uh coding sense and the shaper 3d has some common grounds uh, with the ceos knowing each other uh, in the back uh, so it turned out that this very room uh, was the room of, of uh, the roots of shaper 3d so it's an uh, interesting uh, connection awesome awesome yeah on common ground quite literally perfect Thank you so much for, for coming to join us. My guest today was Akos Kapui, VP of Engineering from Shaper 3D. And uh, we talked about hyper growth and how to manage people and how to teach people and how to create new processes and just an amazing amount of work. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invite. And dear listeners, uh, thank you for keeping up with us. Uh, I am Karolina Toth, and I am hoping to get your feedback. And I also hope to see you next time. Thanks for staying with us. This was the Level Up Engineering Podcast by Apex Lab. Check them out at apexlab.io. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel, rate our content, and share your thoughts on this episode. See you next time.